Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Every two weeks, we discuss a different housing research paper, or two, translating them into non-academic language to better understand how we can create more affordable and accessible cities. My co-host today is Pavo Mankinen, and our interview is with Professor Jiro Yoshida of Pennsylvania State University and the University of Tokyo. This time, we're talking about Japanese housing policy in general and housing depreciation in particular. For a lot of housing advocates, Japan, and Tokyo especially, is the exemplar of abundant and affordable housing. Tokyo builds a phenomenal amount of housing compared to other major cities around the world, and the result is an impressive level of affordability. I discuss this in my book as well, but Tokyo is sort of the archetype, at least in the public imagination, for market-driven housing affordability. But as we discuss with Professor Yoshida, Japan isn't as laissez-faire as many people think, and from my perspective, they strike a really admirable balance between housing abundance on the one hand and strong tenant protections on the other. We cover some of the unique historical, economic, demographic, and seismic factors that have helped put Japan on its present course. And while there's a lot to like about Japan's approach to housing, we also discuss some of its drawbacks. In particular, the high carbon emissions implicit in the rapid production and demolition of housing, and the poor maintenance and high depreciation that accompany it. We close our conversation focusing on depreciation, something that occurs in all places, but is truly a defining characteristic of the Japanese housing market. A through line of our conversation is how much tax policy tends to shape housing outcomes in subtle but very important ways, from the type of homes that get built, to who owns them, whether they're rented or owner-occupied, and whether we have enough of them in the first place. Every part of this interview is packed with lessons for cities in North America and beyond, so we're really excited to share it with you. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with questions or research paper ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu or on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. Here's our conversation with Professor Jiro Yoshida. Joining us this time is Jiro Yoshida. Associate Professor of Business at Pennsylvania State University and Guest Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Tokyo. We're actually discussing two publications that Professor Yoshida has worked on. One is a short case study for the Brookings Institution on the Japanese housing market and policy context, and the other is an article in the Pacific Basin Finance Journal titled The Economic Depreciation of Real Estate, Cross-Sectional Variations, and Their Return Implications which estimates and compares depreciation of real estate in Japan and the U.S. We know many of our listeners have an interest in how the Japanese housing market differs from ours here in North America and what we can learn from their successes and challenges um, in Japan and other places overseas. So we're very excited to have you on the Housing Voice podcast, Professor Yoshida. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy this podcast, and I actually added this podcast to my uh, Spotify favorite, and I introduced some of the episodes to my <laughs> colleagues, right. so I'm really happy to talk to you. This is how we're growing our audience, literally one professor housing researcher at a time. <laughs> one researcher at a time. Every week, our, <laughs> our audience grows by one person. It's great. <laughs> um, and you can hear Pavo here with us today. Welcome, Pavo. 
Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Jiro. And I was waiting to to spring this on you as a surprise. You were my TA for Tom Davidoff's class at Berkeley in 2006 or something. Right. So uh, it's good to see you again after all these years. <laughs> oh wow! Excellent. You were a good TA too. <laughs> Coincidence. Our first question, as always. If you were giving us a tour of your city, what would you want to show us? So this can be a tour of central Pennsylvania, uh, you're in state college, or somewhere else in the US. But uh, I, I will admit that I think Pavo and I are both hoping maybe more so for a tour of Tokyo, if you know it well enough. Right. Yeah. So I live in State College, Pennsylvania, and there are several interesting stuff in State College. For example, it has the world's fourth largest stadium in a Wow. Small town with only 42,000 population. <laughs> so that's interesting. But uh, I agree that the Tokyo and Japan has a little bit more interesting stuff. So I would uh, uh, guide you to Tokyo and Japan. Especially what I'm interested in and what I like about Tokyo and Japan is that it is an architecture wonderland. Right. Mm. So first off, Japan has a 1,300-year-old wooden structure, which is the world's oldest wooden structure. It's called the Horyuji Temple. And the, that structure was built by a 1,400-year-old company, which is the wow. world's oldest company. Yeah. And uh, wow. so we have a lot of old stuff. But also, Japan has Lou Corbusier's modernism architecture used as a museum and Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Imperial Hotel preserved in a historic uh, theme park. And there are eight Pritzker Architecture Award winners in Japan. So their work is everywhere. So we have a lot of uh, good architecture stuff. But at the same time, people continue to build a tiny three-story detached houses on a tiny lot, like a 250 square foot lot. Wow. So that's really yeah. amazing wow. to see. So I would like to show you around a lot of different kinds of architecture in Tokyo and Japan. Yeah, more more diversity in terms of the, the building typologies and everything than I think we have here in most parts of the U.S. So I think the idea that we're going to be talking about real estate depreciation may be a little bit intimidating to some, and I, I would actually count myself among them. But to our audience, rest assured, we're going to start as simple as we can and go from there. But even before we get to talking about depreciation and why it matters for housing, let's first just talk about the Japanese housing market generally. I know that Tokyo has a special place in the hearts of many pro-housing and YIMBY and other housing advocates, certainly on housing production and especially compared to California and other coastal cities in the U.S., Tokyo has a population and this, you know, there's the, like the city, the metro area, there's different things. But Tokyo, by one definition, has a population of about 13 million, but it builds about 150,000 homes per year on average, while California has three times that population, but has averaged around 80 to 90,000 new homes per year for the past five years. So overall, that means Tokyo is building about five times more housing per capita than California and almost certainly more per capita than any other large city in the U.S. So we'll actually link to a blog post by James Gleason, which includes a lot of other interesting facts about Tokyo housing, including how the average floor space uh, per resident has more than doubled since the 1960s, which is a stat I think is really interesting just because it 
sort of illustrates how production and growth can be associated with improving quality of life. But in your case study, you summarize Japan's high production and other aspects of its housing market in the first sentence of your case study. You say, the Japanese housing market is characterized by large construction volume, rapid technological progress, fast depreciation of housing value, a thin secondary market, and low maintenance of existing properties. And I already mentioned the housing production numbers for Tokyo, but could you expand on that introduction a little bit? It strikes me as almost uh, the exact opposite on, on every point, pretty much, as the characteristics of the U.S. housing market. So I think it's worth dwelling on for a bit. Sure. So you're right. Japan has been very aggressive in producing housing, especially after World War II. Um, another interesting fact suggesting a large volume of construction in Japan is that Japan has the largest number of architects per capita in the world. Mm, wow. So Japan has one architect for 400 people, whereas the U.S. has one architect for 3,000 people. Wow. So that um, uh, shows that um, the need for architects are abundant in Japan. And for the past 70 years after World War II, a total of 77 million new housing units were constructed, although there are only 54 million households in Japan. So mm -hmm. that's another fact that shows uh, very active construction activities in Japan. So as you said, in Japan, total number of housing stock exceeded the number of households in the late 1960s. Still, um, the people are making new houses here or in Japan. So that's pretty interesting. And uh, new housing construction is also associated with the uh, concentration of people into Tokyo metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the statistics about the Tokyo government uh, or jurisdictions number, but including commuting zones, Tokyo metropolitan area is much bigger with 38 million population. Right. That's the world's largest city. And so almost the same as California too, the whole state. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So the construction activity in the Tokyo metropolitan area is even greater. And still, also Tokyo is still growing every year. So net migration has been mostly positive throughout the uh, history. But even today, even recent years, the net migration is uh, over 100,000 every year. Wow. Yeah. So that means Tokyo is adding two or three state colleges every year <laughs> right now. So that's uh, how um, new construction is needed in Japan. And um, that's what's going on. And uh, yeah, that's a construction um, situation. And I guess just to add on that, I mean, the, this, the difference in production statistics is really impressive and more impressive when you think about the demographic profiles of California compared to Japan, because Japan has, as I understand it, a much larger old elderly population compared to California. So if we think about, you know, potential new households um, and how much housing is being built, uh, you know, California is doing even, even worse in comparison. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about the um, maybe two parts of this? I think we'll get into the rapid technological process in a, in a later question. But the, the thin secondary market, what you mean by that and what that represents, and also the, the low maintenance of existing properties? Sure. 
So the number of transactions of old or existing houses in Japan relative to the number of completion of new houses is pretty low.、Mm. So people don't really trade old houses. And the reason, there are several reasons for that, but people cannot really expect high prices for old houses. And that is related to depreciation, I'm going to talk about later.、Mm. Uh, but also,、uh, when people do not expect a lot of high,、uh, high price in the secondary market, they don't have incentives to maintain their homes for resale purpose. So,、right. maintenance is very low in Japan. And then what's going to happen is because maintenance level is very low, actual physical quality of the housing stock is deteriorating. And indeed, the quality of old houses are not really good or they are under maintained.、Mm-hmm. So, knowing that, buyers also discount、uh, the, the price of those old houses, especially people are not、uh, sure about. The quality, true quality of the housing. Right. That's a classical lemon's problem or adverse、um, moral hazard slash adverse selection problem. But、uh, that's what's going on. And、uh, as a result, the size of the secondary market for housing in Japan is relatively small.、Mm-hmm. It's almost hard to like, wrap my head around the idea of like, used housing. Like, it, it's so. Commonplace, it's it's what our housing stock is here. And so to hear it described as like secondary or or used is just like that's that's what housing is here. So it's <laughs> it's just such a different、uh, mindset and, and approach to housing. That's right. Yeah. I wonder if that's as true for the the small detached houses that you mentioned, as well as condos and multifamily buildings. And is it the case in Japan, like many countries, that the majority of multifamily Properties are multi owner as well, or are there also a lot of like in the US where the majority of multifamily properties are, are one owner that rents out the units separately? Right. So in Tokyo and large cities, there are multifamily apartments and multifamily condominium structures, and they were built、mm-hmm. more recently. So when we look at the statistics,、um, the demolition and sales statistics are sort of combined. So, we have to be careful. But in Japan,、um, the ownership structure is a little bit mixed.、Uh, what I can say is that there are few professional or business owners of apartments in Japan because those professional investors are sort of staying away from apartment investment until recently.、Mm. And the majority of owners of rental apartments. Uh, apartments and the multi family structures were individuals. Now,、mm. um, some wealthy individuals own entire structure, but the entire structure cannot be too large because the owner is an individual. Then, so we have、uh, many small scale rental residential structures in Tokyo. Then, another type is to That is a, a larger scale multifamily structure that was sold to many individual owners. And then those individual、mm-hmm. owners just own the con- each condominium and rent、right. each unit to、uh, other tenants. That's also common.、Mm-hmm. And I, I think in your、uh, maybe the Brookings article, you mentioned that that's sort of a tax advantaged ownership structure, which is why it's so common. 
That's right. So that's yeah. a really interesting、uh, part of the Japanese housing market. So, Japanese tax policy encourages individuals to own residential apartments or rental apartments.、Mm -hmm. So, one is so a big motivation is tax advantage.、Mm -hmm. So, by owning, when you talk about the property taxes, you start with a tax assessment of property, right? And for residential, Rental properties tax assessment is significantly reduced、mm. from the market price. Okay. So、yeah. the assessed value is really, really small for residential rental apartments.、Mm -hmm. So that is a good incentive for individuals to own rental units. And on top of that, there's additional benefit of inheritance tax in Japan. So、mm. for wealthy individuals, when they have a big west motives, They have choices of having financial assets or real estate. And when they own real estate, then there's a huge tax advantage to that.、Mm -hmm. so、that's another motivation for wealthy individuals to invest in residential. Then they provide rental apartments, especially in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's interesting just in that in the US, we're having lots of you know, conversations and debates around corporate ownership. And, and the growth of these large owners. And so it's interesting to hear that in Japan, it's, it's almost the opposite is, is encouraged.、Um, so, you know, zooming out a again a little bit here, in addition to just building a lot of housing, I think maybe the most important characteristic of Japan's housing market is that it's quite affordable compared to other places. And Tokyo is, I think, especially impressive in that it's managed to keep its prices relatively stable for the past two decades. Even as rents and home prices have you know, exploded in many other major cities around the world. And as you said, Tokyo, even as Japan's population has stagnated or I think even fallen a little bit over the past few years, Tokyo continues to grow at a pretty rapid pace. And so, because it's facing similar growth pressure to places like Los Angeles and New York and Seattle, we're going to focus, I think, a lot of this conversation on Tokyo. So, I'm curious, does its success on affordability come down to housing abundance mainly? Or are there other factors that you want us to know about that help keep housing affordable there? Yes, I would agree with you that、uh, affordability comes from a lot of the supply of housing. But also, Japan is a unique place where housing prices continually decreased for two decades in the past. And that is also related to general deflation in Japanese economy.、Mm -hmm. And also,、um, you know, income growth in Japan for the past 20 years was very slow. So, those are general macroeconomic factors also contribute to the low price of housing in Japan.、Mm -hmm. But also, as you pointed out, probably what's more important is、uh, abundant supply of housing in Japan. Uh, again, as I said,、uh, Tokyo is having a demand pressure or、um, in migration from rural areas of Tokyo still. So there's a demand growth in Tokyo. Then、um, the reason why we can still have sort of a reasonable price for housing is that new housing units are continuously added to the market.、Mm -hmm. Then when you think about the supply elasticity or the New addition of housing units in this market. Probably one interesting feature is the zoning regulation for Japan. 
So zoning regulation in Japan is governed by the national government, although each designation is determined by local government.、Mm-hmm. Then the system of zoning in Japan is、uh, determined by the central government. So it's like the central government says these are the zones that you can pick from, and then level, local governments get to decide where to put those different zones, but they don't get to create their own zones. That's exactly right. Okay, got it. Yes. Sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that that reduces a lot of、uh, you know negotiations and uncertainty、mm-hmm. in zoning regulations in the in Japan because developers can go to other cities and look at the same zoning regulation.、Uh, so、uh, the, they don't have to learn new things in every city. So that's one thing. But also one 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 what's interesting about zo- Japanese zoning is that. Japanese zoning system allows more flexible land use. For example, if you look at the, let's say, residential zones, right? So in residential zones, then only residential uses are admitted. But if you go to commercial zones, then both commercial uses and residential uses are admitted. And in the industrial zones, industrial, commercial, and residential are admitted. So you get、mm-hmm. the idea, right?、Yeah. So、uh, if you Create a matrix of zoning and land use. You have a triangular matrix of、mm-hmm. admitted、uh, land use, and that creates a、uh, more flexibility, especially in terms of, of the supply of、uh, residential units. Right, so residential units can be provided in residential zones as well as in commercial zones.、Mm-hmm. So that's one thing.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, by contrast, when I took uh, uh, community planning and development class at MIT. I learned that the basic zoning land use matrix in the United States is pretty different. So mainly, in the, as a basic、uh, kind of concept, each zone is designated to a particular land use in the United States. So if you create a matrix of、uh, zoning and land use, you have a diagonal matrix instead of a triangular、mm-hmm. matrix.、Uh, although I'm simplifying a lot because you know I'm ignoring PUDs and other special zones, but、uh, as a basic philosophy of zoning, there's a big difference between Japanese zoning system and the U.S. zoning system, and I think that helps、um, the supply of housing in Japan. Yeah, I wouldn't characterize our zoning system as simple. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's fair. Yeah, or, or standardized, and because you know some cities do have that、uh, pyramid structure to zoning in the U.S., but you know every city gets to invent、okay. its own its own zones and、yeah. its own way to do it. Yeah, I wanted to ask about what what you think about how the transportation network in Tokyo affects the affordability. I was wondering whether compared to U.S. metros like L.A. or New York, do you think that neighborhoods are less differentiated? To some extent, because of the transportation network in Tokyo. Yeah, that's a good point.、Uh, as an aggregate, because of a great transportation network and the speed and efficiency of the transportation network,、uh, if you think about urban rent gradient in the、mm-hmm. standard urban economics model, so、uh, the rent premium at the central location comes from the benefit of、uh, saving in time and commuting. Right,、mm-hmm. but because Tokyo has a, a really good transportation system, the city can sprawl and the city city can easily expand. So、mm-hmm. the entire Tokyo metro area is really large. Still, 
people can commute without a problem from a distant place to the central Tokyo every day, go back and forth, back and forth. Right. So that creates a lot of abundant land around Tokyo.、Mm-hmm. And especially in the past, those surrounding locations were agricultural field. But、mm-hmm. those were gradually converted into residential land, and that created a new supply to housing. And that way, reduced the rent premium in the central location as well. So,、right. you're right. A better transportation system helps a lot、uh, in affordability of Tokyo housing. And you were talking about the, you know, the role of the central government in planning. It's my understanding that that was not always the case. And that a lot of this came about, I think it was in the 90s,、um, following a, a real estate bubble, you know, not so different from what we experienced in the, in the 2000s here in the US, but a lot of actions were actually taken to prevent something similar from happening in the future. Is that correct? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about that history and how these changes came about? Right. So, what's interesting about the so called bubble burst in Japanese? Real estate economy or real estate market was that、uh, the burst was triggered by the government, indeed.、Mm. <laughs> so、um, the, there was an asset price bubble or really a sharp appreciation real estate prices in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Then government imposed a, a special restriction on transactions and uh, uh, the taxes to. Real estate holding and real estate investment.、Mm. So that、uh, triggered the declining real estate prices.、Um, so that is sort of a trigger. So when you say investment, it sounds like you're not just talking about、uh, building housing, but just buying housing, buying property with the you know, expectation that it'll appreciate in value. Is that part of what they were targeting? That is also true. Because it sounds so, like there's still a lot of investment happening in, in new production. That's true. That's true. So, I guess the, in the run up of real estate prices, people started to speculate on housing prices and real estate prices.、Mm-hmm. So, they、um, started to trade very frequently, like、uh, flippers.、Right. So, the government's intention was to stop those flipping investment、uh, behavior. But that Affected the entire real estate market, and who suffered most was really the normal, you know, everyone、mm-hmm. suffered or everyone got hit by the、uh, decline in the property market. But、uh, that was the trigger of the、uh, stagnant period of Japanese economy. Got it. And was what, what did production, housing production look like prior to that? Was it Also, very high and just continue to be high, or did it actually increase since that time?、Um, I have to check the statistic. I don't have specific numbers in mind, but、uh, construction activities has been always、mm-hmm. high、uh, before and after the financial crisis. And、uh, what we see these days in the,、uh, the current market is the, a lot of convergence of industrial sites into high rise. Apartments and high rise condominiums.、Um, so, in different time p e r i o d different kinds of development activities occurred. For example, in the past 1970s and、uh, 1980s, Japan had a lot of new towns,、mm-hmm. uh, new town developments around Tokyo, and a huge amount of housing 
was provided in new towns because a lot of uh, people came into Tokyo metro area in order to accommodate people's demand for housing, those new towns were created. And then in 1990s, 2000, more inland renovation and inland redevelopment occurred. Uh, and then in the, in the current market, more of uh, redevelopment of former industrial site is growing. So, you know, um, different phase, phases have a different uh, focus of housing development. In the Brookings article, you say that there are three distinct things about Japan that help explain its housing market, scarce land, the prevalence of earthquakes, and economic trends following World War II. I think we've touched on that a little bit, but you know, if you could explain maybe the first two in particular, the scarce land and the, and the prevalence of earthquakes, and kind of tie this to building codes and the role that has played in the, the rapid turnover of housing in Japan. Right, right, uh, sure. So scarce land is definitely the defining factor of Japanese market. Japan is a small country, but livable place or habitable place is only 30% of the national mm -hmm. land because of uh, inland water, forests, and mountains. So the habitable area is already small. So it's natural to have very tiny housing units in Japan. So um, the number, of, so the average size of housing is pretty small. In like around 1980, European Commission reported that Japanese people live in uh, rabbit cages. <laughs> and uh, so that's sort of natural because we, uh, Japan has only small land. Uh, so that each, each unit is very small. Then over time, the size of housing units has grown rapidly after World War II because of the change in lifestyle. So the lifestyles changed significantly in Japan from right after World War II to 1970s and 1980s. So through that process, the uh, desirable type of housing changed rapidly. And so in accordance to that, uh, developers responded to the new demand for housing. And so that contributed to the obsolescence of old structures mm -hmm. and the early structures become obsolete very quickly. And those obsolete structures are unpopular. Are they unpopular just because people feel like they're not safe or is there, there more to it? Good point. So, right, there are two points, both uh, safety and mm -hmm. taste. So in terms of taste, uh, there are uh, different kinds of sash or different kinds of uh, wall, different kinds of uh, you know, floor to floor uh, right. height and so on. Uh, those are the factors defining the taste, but also regarding the safety, earthquake is another important factor defining Japanese market, especially right after a big earthquake, architects and engineers came up with a new earthquake resistance technology for buildings and quickly implemented those new technologies into the national building code. So National Building Code has been revised right after the uh, major earthquake in the past. And Japan had 
big earthquake every 10 years, basically. So uh, building code has been revised every 10 years significantly in terms of the safety and the earthquake resistance. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, 20% of the major earthquakes on Earth occurs in Japan. Wow. So uh, um, that's a major uh, risk factor for Japanese housing. And then what's going to happen is after building code is revised, all the structures are non-compliant with the new code so that uh, there will there should be a lot of restrictions on the old structures and that diminishes the price of the old structures further so that contributed to the faster depreciation of old structure so overall two factors as you mentioned uh, changing the lifestyle as well as changing the building technology contributed to the large and fast depreciation of housing stock so those are pretty uh, important factor for the market. And do I do I understand correctly that it's almost impossible to get a loan to buy a structure that's not compliant with the latest building code? Right. Um, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's significantly more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for the non-compliant building, uh, still the owner can make some modification or some, you know, a fix to the mm-hmm. existing structure, right. then uh, the, the loan institutions and banks may admit or may originate mortgages to these old buildings. But mm-hmm. anyway, it is significantly difficult to obtain so, mortgages. So do people d- demolish old structures before selling? Or what, what do people do if they have an old house? Right. So they demolish or uh-huh. they keep old structures as is. So that, that's another problem for Japanese housing market mm. as well right now. So the average building age at demolition for Japanese housing is 32 years. So after 32 years, on average, houses were demolished. Right. That may be, that may be too fast. Too fast. <laughs> in the US, it's about 62 years. And then in the UK, it's about 82 years and so on. Mm. So it's significantly short. Then also, tax code uh, favors properties with residential structure on it. Mm-hmm. So from a owner's perspective, if I demolish the structure and create a low, uh, raw land or mm-hmm. flat land, then the property tax is going to increase significantly. Uh, mm. So people just keep old structures unmaintained uh, as mm-hmm. is on the lot, keeping it vacant. So that is a, a current problem in many cities in Japan. And mm-hmm. obviously, those vacant houses create negative external effects in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And some, you know, vacant houses are uh, used by some strangers or, you know, deteriorating. And uh, those old structures can be very dangerous in, mm-hmm. in structure. So that's a new problem for Japan right now. Is there much reflection, like politically in policy circles on the sustainability impact of that rapid reconstruction of housing. You know, there's the there's the balance of high density housing is is more efficient. The you know carbon emissions involved in the operation are are lower, but there's a lot of embodied energy in the construction and the materials itself. And so, how how do Tokyo Japanese policymakers think about that? Right. Um, so, actually, the environmental concern was the 
the reason why I was interested in this housing depreciation problem. Mm. When I studied the green buildings in Japan, especially green condominiums in Japan, Tokyo's green building code or green building label includes item called long life design. So the sustainability building standards take into account longevity of building life. And as Shane said, it's a so long life building is good for environment and carbon emission and so on. Then when I look at the price of green condominiums and non-green condominiums, I find that the green condominiums can maintain its value over, over time. So mm-hmm. aging effect is pretty minimal for green buildings. But non-green buildings depreciation, depreciation is very large. Uh, so over five years, the value depreciates by 25% for normal, st- uh, normal condominiums. Wow. So that was when I... It's like buying a car. That's right. That's right. That's, that's when I became interested in depreciation problem of housing. And so the, the government is aware of that. So in Green Building Research Council at the Ministry of Land and uh, Infrastructure, uh, we discussed uh, how uh, you know, long life and the green buildings can contribute to the um, uh, environmental sustainability issues. So government is uh, concerned about that, but the change is di- very difficult because large construction, fast depreciation, low maintenance, small secondary market, they are all consistent with, the, uh, with each other mm-hmm. and they form a particular equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So it is really difficult for, to, to deviate from the current equilibrium uh, to something better and just one change in the system cannot do that. So uh, even though government is aware and some businesses are aware, still the system is going on and uh, you know, short life of Japanese housing is still continuing. Yeah. Before we get into depreciation a little more, I just want to kind of close our Japanese housing market section of this conversation and just ask kind of more generally, are there policies or approaches to this that you would want to see exported from Japan to the U.S.? And also, you know, on the flip side, are there any things you think that here in the U.S. we do pretty well that you'd like to see more of in Japan? That's a challenging question. But um, if the objective is to increase the housing supply, then there can be there will be several things you can learn from Japanese market. One is, as I talked, more flexible zoning regulation. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you really only think about the supply of housing, then uh, more flexible zoning regulation would help as Tokyo experienced. But you know, the resulting environment and the neighborhood characteristics and so on, that's a, that's a different uh, thing. So we don't really think about only housing supply in quantity. Mm-hmm. So it's right. a more difficult question, problem. But and uh, I, Sorry, can I just ask about that? Because I, I, I remember an article about a, a hillside that had a great view of Mount Fuji in Tokyo. And they were going to build some new buildings that would block the view. And it was like a very famous view that scholars had pondered the mountain from for, for centuries. And so that was something I wondered about kind of opposition to redevelopment 
kind of at the neighborhood level in Tokyo and whether that's mm. something that you can say. I mean, did Japan go too far? I see. I see. That's an interesting,、uh, interesting point. So, the case you mentioned was in Kunitachi city. And so, what happened was、uh, the new, a new large, tall building was designed and constructed. Then,、uh, residents opposed to the development. And eventually, the developer had to cut the top part of the building. <laughs> To lower the height of the building so that people can see Mount Fuji. <laughs> so、um, that was a, a very famous case. But now, you know, there are many tall, high rise residential buildings in Tokyo everywhere.、Mm-hmm. So we, I don't think、uh, people are opposing on the ground of a view of Mount Fuji and something like that.、Mm-hmm. So people are more now acceptable. Uh, or accepting these t- high rise buildings. But at the same time, it takes a lo- long time for a Japanese developer to build a large scale building.、Mm. One example is a Roppongi、uh, or Roppongi Hills development.、Mm-hmm. Sure. It took 20 years to complete the project、wow. uh, from the purchase of the land to completion of the building. So usually, US developers won't. You won't be interested in that type of long term development.、Mm-hmm. So, that manifests some opposition and a lot of opposition and the difficulty in getting permission for large scale development.、Uh, so, you know, even though the general zoning code is flexible, still there are many other factors defining、uh, development activities, and、uh, Pablo is right. So,、um, it's not simple.、Mm-hmm. We can move on here just in a minute, but I did want to note one last thing that I didn't put in my notes, but I, I wanted to flag here is that it sounds like Japan, maybe all of Japan, also has effectively some form of rent stabilization and、mm. just cause eviction protections. And so I just, you know, I want to flag that as like they have those protections for tenants and they're able to produce a lot of housing. These things are not necessarily. In conflict with one another, or not, you know, impossible to, to make work alongside of one another if you have the right policies in place. Is that like a fair characterization? Right. So, tenant protection is a really important、uh, aspect of Japanese housing as well.、Mm-hmm. And I would say that tenant protection creates a very interesting and particular consequence on the housing market. So, let me elaborate on that. Um, so, as、uh, Shane said, the tenant protection in Japanese rental market is really strict、uh, historically. And so, the landlord cannot reject the lease renewal or cannot evict tenants without filing a lawsuit and establishing just cause.、Mm-hmm. On the other hand,、uh, at the same time, on the, from the tenant side, tenant can Terminate the lease anytime by one month notice. And also,、uh, tenant can stay almost indefinitely by renewing the lease.、Mm-hmm. And at the same also, the landlord cannot increase rents significantly to the market level because, again, if a landlord gets into a lawsuit, it's probably difficult for a landlord to win the lawsuit. So, 
out of that strong tenant protection, what's happening is the rents for existing tenants are very stable. So sitting tenants' rents are very stable over time, especially mm-hmm. for long-term tenants. So after 10 years, 20 years, it's possible that old sitting tenants' rents are half of the market rents. Mm. So uh, that's a, a particular form of rent control. It's although it's not called rent control. So uh, that is one aspect of the or one consequence, direct consequence of the tenant protection. Then long-term consequence of that tenant protection is the undersupply of rental housing for families. Why? Because families tend to stay in a house for a longer time than young adults. Mm, yeah. So yeah. landlords try to prevent or try to avoid having family tenants in their units. So for landlords, rental housing landlords, they like to provide smaller units, so-called one-room mansion in Japan. By the way, one-room mansion <laughs> is like an oxymoron, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is a studio apartment in a high-rise or medium-rise uh, multi-family structure. Yeah, hard, hard to raise children with in one big room, though. <laughs> but, Even if but, it's very large. No, but the one-room mansion in Japan is very small. So the okay. typical <laughs> size is uh, 30 square meters or less. Oh, wow. So it's really just a studio apartment. Which is but... under 300 square feet, I think. That's right. right. That's yeah, right. 10 square feet per, That's correct. per square meter. So that means for family tenants, there, are many, there aren't many decent rental housing units for families. So mm-hmm. families have to build their own houses. So that creates a lot of demand for new single-family detached housing. Mm. So the consequence of a strong tenant protection in the long run was that the supply of family residential units are really limited. And most families have to arrange mortgages and buy new houses. And that created a new demand for housing construction. And the construction industry responded to that. And again, that created a system of a large construction of single-family housing and uh, and so on. Got it. That's super interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to forge ahead here and talk a little bit about depreciation and depreciation rates. I'm going to start with some very, very basic questions. And the two most basic I can think of are where I will start, which is, what is depreciation in the context of housing development um, and just housing generally, and why does it matter? Sure. So depreciation I study is so-called economic depreciation of real estate prices and rents, as opposed to depreciation for taxes and accounting. So first, Mm. it's important to distinguish these two. Okay. And uh, so the economic depreciation is the reduction in value or rents due to physical deterioration or functional obsolescence. Uh, Whereas tax and accounting depreciation is predetermined by the tax authority or IRS. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, residential structures have 27.5 years of life and the value depreciates or the value, accounting value decrease by the same amount every year. So that is determined by the tax authority regardless of the quality, regardless of the economic reality. Mm -hmm. Like you could be maintaining it really well, but you're still 
depreciating by three and a half percent a year that's right so each year in the us yeah that's right so what i study is the economic depreciation and the economic depreciation is uh again dri- driven by two factors and it is again important for sustainability and also it is important for consumer welfare because if the depreciation rate is really large then people have to spend a lot of resource and income into housing every year right so imagine a planet where housing structure depreciates uh, by 100% every day then mm-hmm. every day people have to rebuild housing right mm-hmm. then all income has to be basically put into housing reconstruction and all resources of capital and labor have to be put into construction industry then no other resources left for let's say you know medical research or whatever right so the depreciation affects people's welfare and wealth accumulation so large depreciation means that people have to sort of spend a lot of money into uh, rebuilding and uh, reconstruction of structures and that's not only for homeowners but also renters have to bear the cost as well because the landlord is going to charge extra rent corresponding to the fast depreciation in mm-hmm. in the form of rents so renters also have to pay housing costs so large depreciation means that uh, overall housing or residential costs are high so that's uh that's the reason why i'm interested in depreciation and you find in in your paper you estimate that depreciation economic depreciation in japan is is much faster than in the us for all of the reasons we've already talked about around 6 to 8% for residential properties each year upward of 10% for commercial properties in many cases and in the us we're looking at less than 2% per year in uh for residential properties and so i guess One question, I think we've answered it to some extent already, um but if you have any more to say about why there's such a big difference there, but since you brought up how these depreciation rates affect the amount we spend on housing, do you actually find, I know this is not the the focus of your paper, but do Japanese households spend a lot more of their income on housing? Um so I didn't really formally compare the uh housing expenditure share between different countries so i cannot say for sure about that point but uh, if you compare two cases where one with a low depreciation and one the other with large depreciation uh, mechanically large depreciation has to be associated with a large expenditure share of housing in income mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but so affordability of japanese housing is not coming from depreciation actually depreciation is working against affordability of japanese housing but affordability of japanese housing coming from a greater supply of new housing in the market so it might be possible that if housing in japan were still very abundant but better maintained and so not depreciating as quickly you might actually have even lower costs yeah i would right, think so in that case okay yes yeah i wonder how it compare would like so you know when we talk about the housing crisis in in california sometimes we say that it's not it's not that visible new fancy apartments are very expensive it's that old deteriorated apartments are very expensive so i think it's important to note that you know the depreciation 
economic depreciation is not reflected in the deterioration of quality of housing necessarily. Um, and so, and so that made me think like, so, you know, as an indicator of our problem, I think in California, for example, depreciation is very low. So is there, can, can you think about, is there some kind of optimal depreciation rate or, you know, cause you're, you're saying that a large depreciation rate means that people are spending more money on housing, but what would be the optimal or is there a way to think about that? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't have immediate thought about the optimal depreciation, but what, what I can say about California housing is that the proportion of land in property value is pretty high in California. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the rent, rent can be decomposed into structural rent and uh, land rent or location rent. Mm-hmm. And California's high rent is really coming from large location rent. So right. in a sense, you know, deterioration in structure in California doesn't really matter because the location is really important uh, exactly. factor determining the rent. Just in reference to the, to the land capital exchangeability um, and different parts of the city, you also estimate depreciation rates at, at greater distances from the CBD. Maybe you can just say what you found and, and why that's relevant. CBD being a central business district, something that used to be a big deal. <laughs> right, right. So yes, uh, CBD land prices are higher than suburban land prices. So in my data, I observe higher proportion of land in CBDs and central locations then what's going to happen is that uh, observed depreciation is lower in central locations because the majority of asset price is land value. Then the proportion of structure is smaller in, in those locations. Then where structure is more important, then the observed depreciation rate is higher. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you focus on the structure component itself, then structure depreciation rate is pretty constant, uh, mm-hmm. re- regardless of the location. So that's a distinction. So another, that's an, another important distinction, whether you look at the depreciation at the entire property level, or look at the rate of depreciation only for the structure component. Mm-hmm. And I would say structure depreciation rate will be pretty constant because uh, physical depreciation is pretty common to all properties or all structures. And uh, functional obsolescence is also pretty common to, um, to, to different structures. But right. the proportion of land is very different by location. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, it makes me think just because I mean, California, where so much of the most valuable land is restricted to one small housing unit or one large housing unit, I guess I should say. Um, so I wonder how much of, I mean, it might be interesting to estimate and whether you've thought about kind of looking at how zoning interacts with this depreciation estimate. So those those property don't depreciate, actually, because the majority <laughs> of the part is land and the structure right. is tiny in value. So they yeah. don't really depreciate. And so, because you could potentially estimate kind of in different different zoning scenarios how that would affect the overall depreciation rate of a of a metro. Yes, yes. Even though your paper is more on the economic, I have a question about the tax side of things because it's actually what I already knew a little bit about, just had some context here in the U.S. for. 
And so I, I want to just tell this quick story that I've been telling myself about depreciation and how it might be important and sort of under-recognized as a, as a factor in production and affordability uh, more broadly. So curious to hear your reaction to it. While I was researching my book, I learned about a series of tax changes made in the U.S. in the 1980s that dealt with housing. Um, the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981 actually cut the depreciation schedule for rental property by more than half from it was 32 years prior to that act and it was cut down to 15 years and other changes were made regarding like tax shelter provisions and capital gains taxes that were also favorable to rentals around that same time multifamily construction just jumped massively from 390,000 homes per year in 1981 to 670,000 per year in 19 or for that year in 1985. But then in 1986, uh, 1984 and 1986, many of those changes were reversed. And by the early 1990s, multifamily construction had fallen all the way down to 175,000 multifamily homes per year. And obviously there's a lot going on during that time. It certainly can't all be attributed to depreciation rates and tax shelters. But if you know anything about this, or if uh, you know you have similar examples, like just to explain to us a little bit about what's going on, or why this matters, or what what lessons we might draw from this. Yeah, that's a fascinating example of how task, tax code can affect housing investment and housing production. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, the depreciation shield, tax shield, is part of the tax code, and. Uh, as you explained, uh, depreciation tax shield can be a very important part of tax abatement, right? So um, that is significant. And uh, so I have two things related to that. So the driving factor is not necessarily depreciation itself, but it's really the tax advantage, right? So any mm-hmm. tax advantage related to housing investment can cause the similar effects. So you, what, what you illustrate is how tax is important for housing investment and uh, housing construction. Then uh, one example I can talk about regarding Japanese housing is again, inheritance tax and so on. So as I mentioned before, Japanese housing properties have tax advantage in terms of property tax and uh, inheritance tax. And that inheritance tax advantage of housing creates a huge supply of housing construction uh, in Japan. And that's another example of how tax code can affect people's investment in housing. Mm-hmm. And this is just what I, what, what I talked about. And then another thing I can talk about is in the United States, the uh, tax treatment is different between owner-occupied units and rental units, right? So what you talked about is about rental units, especially income-producing rental units, right? So so think about the owner-occupied housing units. You can think of owner-occupied housing unit as a, a... one person being a landlord and the same person being a tenant at the same time. Imputed rents. Yes. Imputed rents, right. <laughs> but in the United States, imputed rents are not taxed. Imputed right. rents are not considered as an income. But 
that once, you're paying to yourself as as rent, basically. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And once the owner and the tenant it's separated are separated, suddenly the government starts to recognize the income and starts mm-hmm. to take money uh, mm-hmm. from that transaction. Okay, landlord, you are getting money, so I'm gonna, I'm going to tax inc. Uh, uh, I'm going to tax uh, on your income, right? And then the depreciation tax shield is effective in that process, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the taxes on the rental income are sort of all else equal discouraging investment in rental housing, but the tax shield, the depreciation is intended to sort of offset that. That's right. That's right. So in the first place, right. So in the first place, the US government is encouraging home ownership and owner occupied mm-hmm. housing and discouraging rental apartments by the tax code. And if there's a, a stepping back, if there's a, a tax system on the imputed rent in the first place, then there should be a very different composition of home ownership and rental units. So the question is whether we like to have more rental units or owner-occupied units. And there are, there's a, a lot of debate around that. Um, home ownership has a lot of uh, positive externalities as well as negative externalities. And so the question is whether as a society, we'd like to have more rental units or mm-hmm. more housing uh, owner occupied housing units. And again- I feel like right now we could just use more of both. <laughs> <laughs> right, again, what you illustrate is how tax code can be very powerful. Tax mm-hmm. code can be very powerful in determining the proportion of different kinds of housing in the, yeah, in the yeah. economy. I think that's part of why I like to bring up that that case is just, we think so much about you know people's incomes and zoning and, and other aspects, um, and we don't think much about the taxes, but they really can have a, a big impact, at least you know in, in a system where we rely on private investment to build the vast majority of our housing. And you, right. you can also think about the tax benefits to building multifamily, like to, to, to building new multifamily and owning multifamily long term, because I think it's also the case in Germany where the, there's a lot of individual, you know, like people own one unit that they rent out and that is a tax benefit to them in the long term. And they're, so they're willing to accept kind of stabilized rents over a long period of time and provide a stable home to people in that manner because of the tax benefits. And I do think our, our the Housing Voice podcast listeners are ready to think about homeowners as renting to themselves, <laughs> although most people don't don't think about it that way. Um, I wonder because I, I think Switzerland does tax imputed rents for homeowners. Do you know of any other countries, or is, is that true? Do you know if that's true, or, or are there any? Because that is no, like I don't a, know. I... a very big a very big conceptual leap to make in the tax code. I think. Yeah, I think they do. <laughs> They're like that's, one of very, very next, few places. That's next level. I mean, at least make right. the 10-year choice tax neutral. I mean, I think you know most countries benefit homeowners much more than they benefit renters. But you know, I think you know making it slightly yeah. on the renter side makes sense just because there are other benefits to homeownership. But I would expect a lot of opposition from homeowners, which yes. accounts for 65% of the population. <laughs> and and <a> higher, <laughs> higher share of the voters. Yeah. Professor Jiro Yoshida, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You can read more about Professor Yoshida's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. 
Housing Voice is taking a break over the holiday, so this will be our last episode of 2021, but we'll be back at the beginning of 2022 with a new interview, and we'll be talking about our podcast name inspiration, the Housing Choice Voucher Program. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and you can find Pavo at El Pavo. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you in the new year.